0: I have made preparations, careful preparations for this evening. This morning, I asked Alan's permission that if Carl prolongs his speaking tonight, I can rest by uh, reclining on the pew in the front. So if you see my head go down, it's not because I've had a heart attack or anything like that. I'm just going to take a nap so that I do not become like Eutychus in the scripture. Uh, If you remember, Paul was preaching and prolonged his speaking and Eutychus fell out of the third story window. Now, I have a absolute confidence in this congregation, but I'm not sure that you can raise the dead yet. Uh, I love to tease Carl just like Tracy does. So I talked to him this morning. I, I did my I followed my own advice and I grabbed him by his tie and looked at him dead in the eye, I said, you know, Carl, an elder told me one time that all the great orators of history have been able to finish their sermons in 22 minutes. And that's true. The Sermon on the Mount only took eight minutes to preach. So, Carl looked me dead in the eye and said, you must like the number 22. Those of you who have been here before understand the meaning of that. Tonight, we are closing out my portion of the conference. We're not closing out the conference, and the conferences will continue, I hope, until the Lord returns. But uh, today, or tonight, we want to look at the last uh, woman figure or woman character in the Gospel of John. And I desperately wanted to preach a short sermon this, uh, this evening, but the Lord would not allow me to. Uh, And the reason for that is, as someone suggested today, everything depends on the context. And we are going to end up in John chapter 20, the great resurrection chapter, but we're going to have to look at chapters 18 and 19. So I would ask that you would turn, turn it over. As you know, at the end of 17, we come to the end of what is called the Upper Room Discourse, that Jesus spoke to his disciples the night before his departure. And we're looking at the character Mary Magdalene, who uh, historically has been a a woman of questionable character in church history. And we noticed as we looked at the female characters that have been painted here, that not one except maybe the Lord's mother had an unsullied reputation. And you say, well, you're speaking badly about women. No, I'm not. Because the women figures, the women character represent the community. They represent the bride of Christ. And they're still in process. So no matter what sin they have committed, what their reputation or character is like until they come to meet the master, it doesn't really matter. Because he's preparing us and them and individuals to be presented to himself. The language that Paul uses in Ephesians is a presentation of the the bride to the groom in a marriage ceremony, and so we want to look at uh, uh, chapters eighteen and nineteen in the Gospel of John. This is the preceding context, two chapters of preceding context we 're looking at chapter eighteen verses one through nine and We left the Lord last night in the temple teaching with the woman taken in adultery, teaching that he is the light of the world. And just as the sun came up from the east and he came to the temple in deep darkness, the sun got brighter and brighter and exposed the sin of the men who had accused the woman and ultimately revealed the fact that God was a God of grace and he could apply the law any way he wanted to and he applies it with forgiveness and graciousness. When Jesus had finished these words, this is a reference to the preceding chapters, he went out of the temple grounds with his disciples. Okay? He crossed over the brook Kidron, that's going east towards uh, Golgotha or Calvary or uh, the Mount of Olives, and there was a Jewish cemetery that existed there, And the Jewish cemetery was placed there because the Jewish people believe that the resurrection occurs in concentric circles starting at the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. So any good Jew wanted to be buried close to the temple. That's what the souls under the altar in Revelation are all about. He crossed over the Brook Kidron. There was a causeway there so that the uh, people walking uh, across that way would not get defiled by uh, having contact with a dead body or a, a, a grave, he had to cross in the causeway or else he would have become defiled. Now, John is very careful here. He says there was a garden there. And you should be tuned in sufficiently after some of the other messages and my messages earlier on. Whenever you see a garden in the scripture, it is an allusion to the first garden. But something different is going to happen in this second garden. The Garden of Eden was a walled enclosure, and we've toyed around with people this week talking about whether there's a wall or not. But you have to have a walled enclosure because you have two angelic or cherubim guards on the eastern side. If there would have been no wall or enclosure, there would have been no advantage to just putting guards on the east side you'd have to have the east north south and west so the garden of eden was a walled enclosure it was on the top of a mountain it was on the top of the mountain we know that because it had four rivers running out from it and water usually runs downhill in my understanding there was a garden there so john again is going back to the garden of eden and saying hey Something new is happening, not the Garden of Eden that we saw in the beginning of the Scripture, but this new garden, this Garden of Gethsemane, which means an olive oil press, is where what happened in the Garden of Eden is going to be reversed. There was a garden here. The whole narrative is a reenactment of the Garden of Eden narrative. Jesus, the seed of the woman and Judas, the seed of the serpent. It says literally earlier on in John's Gospel that Satan entered into him. That means Satan indwelled Judas. Why? Because Judas gave him an opening with his covetous nature in his handling of the money. Jesus often met there in his garden with his disciples. God would meet with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, the approach of the serpent Judas receives a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests, the Sadducees, and Pharisees who had came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then it says, Jesus, knowing all things that would happen to him, this is his divine foreknowledge, asks two questions. Or he asks a question, whom are you seeking? Earlier on in the uh, Gospel of John in 138, he says to the two disciples, what are you seeking? And then he says, Let's meet together and spend some time together, and then I can explain to you what I'm all about. The answer is, in verses 1 through 9, Jesus of Nazareth, reference to his human nature, and the answer is, I am, reference to his divine nature. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Let's see where where it is. uh, Let's see. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, verse 5. Notice that the he is in italics, meaning that the translators have supplied it. So Jesus makes the great confession of faith based on Exodus 3.14 again. He says, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am, is reference to his, his, my nature. And this marvelous picture is shown to us then, the, the reaction of the guards with the clubs and the torches and the the serpent and all the people that were involved in trying to arrest Jesus, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is a proper response when in the presence of deity. I agree with whoever spoke this earlier on. People say, when I see the Lord, I'm going to tell him this. You're not going to tell the Lord anything. You're going to fall on your face as one dead and plead for mercy with no words coming out of your mouth. Let, and Jesus says, let these others go away. He's laying down his life as a substitute for these sheep. Now in verses 10 through 27, Peter is outside the gate. Now starts the drama of Peter's denial. He is outside the gate to the courtyard just like Adam and Eve were outside the Garden of Eden. John, it doesn't say who it is, someone, tells the doorkeeper to let him in. She mentions that Peter may be a disciple, but Peter asserts that he is not. Using the similar expression to Jesus, I am statements, but Peter says, I am not. Jesus says, I am. Peter says, I am not. So that's a play on words going on. And by the way, when Peter went out from the campfire or the, the, the uh, charcoal fire that was, was uh, burning there, He went into the outer darkness. went into the outer darkness. So they finally arrest Jesus. He goes voluntarily. He did not have to go. That's why we know because the people fell down on the ground. He voluntarily submits himself to the uh, people that were sent to arrest him. And then starts the Jewish trial. In the Jewish trial, the high priest examines him about his disciples and his doctrine, which was the indeed the high priest's responsibility. Whenever a new prophet arose in Israel, the high priest would send a delegation to certify that this was a true prophet of God or a heretic. And Jesus asserts his innocence by showing that everything he taught, he taught publicly. He was not a secret uh, rebel against the cause of God. He was not a doctrinal heretic. Everything that he taught was in accordance with Scripture and in accordance with the accepted Jewish teaching of the day. This public proclamation is in contrast, of course, to Peter's denial, which was secret. After no accusation can be brought, Peter denies Jesus a second and a third time. Immediately after this, the cock crowed in answer to Jesus' prediction about Peter. At this point, the Jewish trial came to a close. We have had a Jewish trial. Now we will have a Gentile trial. Notice the irony that is going on here. The Jewish leaders are getting ready to condemn Jesus to death, an innocent man, but they won't enter the praetorium because it will defile them so they can't eat the Passover. We're about to kill an innocent man, but that's okay, but we won't go into of Pilate's Praetorium, because he's a Gentile and we do not want to get defiled. Then the first question is Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers Pilate's question with his own question Are you speaking for yourself or did others tell you about me? Pilate's question shows his contempt for the Jews Am I a Jew? Certainly not. His second question What have you done? This is a request for the nature of his crime. Jesus does not answer this question since he has done nothing wrong, but goes back to the first question. He tells Pilate, now listen very carefully here, my kingdom is not of the world. The preposition of means that his kingdom does not originate in his world or in this world. Many times people will cite this passage when they're arguing for the fact that Jesus didn't want to establish a political kingdom. He wanted to establish a spiritual kingdom. What he wanted to establish was he wanted to restore the Davidic kingdom even on and back to Adam, who was originally the king of the world. His wife Eve was the queen of the world as vice representatives of God the Father. But The problem was the quality of kingship that was required. So he was not trying to establish a spiritual kingdom, whatever that means. It's kind of spooky. It's like Casper the friendly ghost type of thing. He was not trying to establish a spiritual kingdom. He was trying to establish a physical, political kingdom upon the earth, but with people that were qualified character-wise, and loyalty-wise, to reign and rule. So the problem is not the nature of the kingdom. The problem is the nature of the king. We had a whole history of kingship in the Old Testament, and everyone was measured against David, and David was a chief of sinners. So God set up the kingdom or permitted the kingdom to be established to demonstrate that a man was inadequate to rule himself, you had to have the God-man to rule him. So the preposition of means that his kingdom does not originate in this world. Timing is everything. If my kingdom were of this world, but it is not, then my servants would fight. The purpose of them fighting would be so that he would not be arrested. Now here I want you to circle something in your Bible if you do that or take notes or do something uh, make a little sticky note and hang it on the, uh, uh, on the kitchen door, uh, the uh, refrigerator door. That's where I want you to look at. And every day you go in for a bagel or a cookie or a glass of milk or something, look at this verse, but now my kingdom is not from here. This is an important word since it applies that there will be a time when Jesus' kingdom will be from this world. Timing is everything. They thought he was, had his second coming at his first coming, and they got confused. It's like looking from the east, from the Allegheny Mountains. You can see the Rocky Mountains from the Allegheny Mountains. What you can't see is the Great Plain in between. The time periods between the first coming and the second coming were unseen by the Old Testament prophets. They'd put the first coming and the second coming in the same verse. So please remember, when you're talking to people about the kingdom, that the issue is when, not if. Now, apparently, Pilate was satisfied that Jesus was not seeking an earthly kingdom. He pursues the issue of kingship. Are you a king, then? Jesus answered that he is king, as Pilate says. For this cause, to become king of the Jews, he was first born. Furthermore, he was born to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate exonerates him. In these verses, Pilate goes out again to the Jews and declares Jesus to be not guilty. Next, Pilate suggests the principle of substitution. He proposes to release a guilty man for an innocent man, and that is the principle of substitution. Somebody who is guilty Dies in the place of someone, or someone who is innocent, dies in the place of someone who is guilty. Some of you may remember me referring to last conference that we had, the movie The Green Mile. How many have seen The Green Mile? Did you realize that John Coffey was innocent? He died between two thieves, watch one who Believed in him, and one who did not believe in him. John Coffey is one of the most marvelous literary figures and movie figures of a Jesus Christ personality. His initials are J.C. John Coffey, and he kept saying, he kept saying, like the drink, black, but different inside. I'm really Jesus Christ, but my glory has been veiled by my my robe of flesh that I'm wearing. Now, that is the principle of substitution. Someone who is guilty goes free, and someone who is innocent is punished for them. As I suggested the other day, most of these sections of John have chiastic structure, and this, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, is the center of the chiasm in these two chapters. Let's look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put in him a purple robe. Then they said, hail king of the Jews and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, behold I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. This is the center of the chiasm. This is the main point of chapters 18 and 19. The crown of thorns, may I suggest to you, reminds us of the curse that was placed on Adam. No longer shall the ground bring forth fruit for you, it shall bring forth thorns and thistles. And everybody in this uh, meeting tonight that has been in a garden knows what happens when you leave the ground fallow. It automatically produces a crop of thorns and thistles. So, In the divine providence and the divine plan, Jesus is taking us all the way back to Adam and bearing the sin from Adam to the cross. They also put on him a purple robe, which was usually worn by the most powerful Roman emperors. Ironically, the Gentile... now Here's the irony of this. I love this. Ironically, the Gentile Roman soldiers proclaimed Jesus as their king while the Jews proclaim Caesar as their king. You get the irony going on there? Here we have pagan, unbelieving Roman soldiers declaring that this is the king of the Jews, hail king of the Jews, and then the leadership of Israel proclaims that only Caesar is their king. Pilate announces in verse 4 his sentence of not guilty the second time. He finds no fault in him, nothing worthy of death, nothing to be blamed. Jesus was never adequately accused of anything wrong that he had violated the Mosaic law. In verse 5, Pilate brings out to the crowd and says, behold the man. This again is a veiled allusion to Adam, the first man. She shall be called man, he shall be called woman. The chief priests and officers, as representatives of the law, demand that Pilate crucify him. Pilate gives his sentence of acquittal a third time, third time not guilty. And we are all familiar with the principle that takes three witnesses to establish a legal fact. Legally, Jesus was being crucified for no reason, but we understand and know that the reason he was crucified was because he was carrying our sin, our guilt, all the curse that had been put upon mankind or humanity since the days of Adam. Well, we can't get him on this charge. Let's try another charge. The Jewish leaders then bring the religious charge. He is guilty of blasphemy because he made himself to be the son of God. To be a son of the gods in Pilate's mind was to become divine. The Roman emperors became gods by vote of the Senate after their deaths. Boy, that's a kind of a tenuous procedure. How would you like to get in the kingdom of the vote of our Congress? Scary thought. The Roman emperors became gods by vote of the Senate after their deaths. Later, while they were yet living, they became voted gods. But this would not pose any political danger to Pilate at all. Finally, the Jewish leaders bring on the political threat. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. To be a friend of the emperor was a very important position in the Roman Empire. The captain of the Praetorian guard, Sejanus, had just fallen from the favor of the emperor Tiberius and had been executed. So this may have been a death threat. If they were threatening Pilate with a charge of disloyalty to the Roman Empire that would ultimately lead in his arbitrary death. Pilate brings Jesus out of the praetorium and sits down in the judgment seat that is in a place called the payment, but in Hebrew is called Gabbatha. This was the outer courtyard of the temple in which the bronze laver sat. The Jewish Sanhedrin met here. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, which is 12 noon, this was the time the priests started to sacrifice the Passover lambs. So just as the priests were starting to sacrifice the Passover lambs, Jesus was being in the process of convicted. Pilate again, in a bit of our irony, says to the Jewish leaders, Behold your king! The irony is a Gentile ruler presents Jesus to the Jewish nation as their king, and they choose the Gentile emperor. We have no king but Caesar. In verse 15, the translators have chosen the English away with him, away with him. However, the verse could just as easily be translated, lift him up, lift him up, crucify him. At the end of the verse with their statement, we have no king but Caesar, the nation is doomed by the choice of its leadership. This is essentially an oath of loyalty. They are swearing allegiance to Caesar who claimed divinity. It seems obvious that this is the sin of having no other gods before Jehovah. Paul said, whoever voice you listen to, you are that one's servant. They listened to the voice of Pilate. They listened to the voice of Caesar. They pledged their allegiance to a man who claimed divinity. And thus they betrayed their nation." And that's why, by the way, just as a side note, that's why the Jews in Acts had to be baptized. They had to be baptized. Peter said, Repent and be baptized. Later on, Peter and John went down to Samaria. They had believed, they were uh, water baptized, but they did not have the Holy Spirit until they laid hands on them. And later on in Acts chapter 8, Peter preaches to Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit descends, and then they're water baptized. Why do the Jews have to be water baptized? Because water baptism is a legal ritual, among other things, but primarily it's a legal ritual asserting yourself to be legally dead. That's what baptism is all about. You declare in the presence of witnesses that you are legally dead to your old life, Your old identity, your old man is legally dead. You're no longer bound by any passions, activities, or anything that's related to the old man. So the Jews, the Palestinian Jews especially, who had incurred a curse based on the statement of their own leadership, his blood be upon us and upon our children, had to be baptized to get out from and under the curse. They had to go through legal death to be declared righteous in the sight of God and then they would get the Holy Spirit. And some of you may encounter Church of Christ people, and they have real problems with that issue. The soldiers lead him away to be crucified. They lead him to a place called Golgotha, which we are told in verse 20 was near the city. It's variously called the place of the skull, the place of the headcount, the place of the red heifer offering. It was considered to be outside the camp of Israel. The rabbis had drawn a circle around the Holy of Holies, in uh, the temple, 2,000 meters uh, radius, and a circle was drawn. That was considered to be the camp of Israel, a reenactment of the wilderness experience. The Mount of Olives, where Jesus was crucified, was outside the camp. There was another altar there uh, where the ashes of the red heifer were burned, and that's where Jesus was indeed crucified, Jesus was crucified on a mountain where you had to be able to see the eastern gate of the temple. That's why the Roman centurion told us. In another piece of irony, Pilate affixes a sign on the cross. I love this. This sign usually gave the charge against the criminal, but John has it to teach the theological truth. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a a reference to his first coming, the king of the Jews, a reference to his second coming. Are we in tune with that now? Now watch this. But notice the hidden name in Hebrew Yeshua melech HaMelech HaYehudim. It spells the four letter tetragrammaton of Yehovah if you line it up in Hebrew. The hidden name, and here it is displayed in front of, as we usually say, God and everybody. Oh, he's hanging on the cross. The fact that he was Jehovah, uh, Yeshua. Jehovah Yah is the name of the father in the Old Testament. Jehovah, Jehovah Yeshua is the name of the son in the New Testament. It was near the city, probably on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, where the temple could be seen. The sign on the cross was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew was the religious language Greek was the commercial language, Latin was the legal language. John could not have stated in any stronger terms that Jesus was dying for all men. And this refutes the hyper-Calvinist heresy. The priests complained. Now, this is beautiful. Then in another delightful piece of irony, the chief priests complained about the sign. They want Pilate not to write the king and the Jews They want him to write that Jesus said, I am the king of the Jews. In saying that, they unconsciously confess that Jesus is the God-man. I am is the title of undiminished deity. The king of the Jews is a picture of his perfect humanity. Jesus was a unique person in history. He is fully God and fully human combined in one person without mixture and confusion. That's the doctrine of Christ. And his atonement, his sacrifice, what he did on the cross is available to all. Two comments need to be made about verse 23. First, the personal clothing of Jesus was divided into four parts, each part given to a soldier. But the deeper meaning is that the benefits of Christ's death were available to all. All four cardinal points of the compass starting at Jerusalem. In verse 1925, we see the legal principle of three witnesses again to the legal transaction. Pilate had said three times that he was not guilty of any crime, not worthy of death. There are three Marys, the mother of Jesus, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons who were witnesses to the crucifixion. In verse 26, Jesus lays down his life for the widowed daughter of Zion. When he calls her woman, we should think again of Eve, the first woman. Adam should have laid down his life for her as a substitute. What would have happened? God would have accepted his sacrifice, but then we wouldn't have the rest of the story. In the act of hanging on the cross, Jesus gives the community to the care of the apostles. Again, we have allusions back to Genesis. Woman, Eve, behold your son, the seed of the woman. Finally, the whole procedure is an adoption procedure. Jesus, as the legal head of the household, provides for his widowed mother, the believing remnant of Israel, by putting her under the legal care of John the apostle. The last act in this section pictures for us what the meaning is of the action. Jesus, in fulfillment of scripture, says, I am thirsty, a statement of both his deity and his humanity. Here he is thirsty for the waters of life, i.e. resurrection. In 4.7, Jesus has said to the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. In 7.37, Jesus had cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The bystanders, in contrast, offer him a sponge with sour wine, the venom of the wrath of God. Spreading the bl- blood on the doorpost. The sponge was lifted up with hyssop, the branch which was used to spread the blood on the doorpost during the Passover. It was also used with the ceremony of the red heifer. Finally, he drinks a cup and cries out, It is finished, which has the secular meaning of paid in full a picture we have of the atonement. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus with a spear to ensure that he was dead. Out of his side came blood and water. The blood is the blood of the sacrifice that cleanses from all sin, First 1 John 1, nine. The water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit since John 7.38 says, out of his side shall flow rivers of living water. It was preparation day. This was the day before the Passover. This was not the regular Sabbath. It was a high Sabbath connected to the Passover. The legs of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. We see the same thing happening in 1933. Jesus, the Lamb of God, did not have his legs broken. We started verse 25 with three witnesses. Now we have an additional three witnesses. First, John, the author, puts his personal eyewitness testimony in the text. Next, Exodus 12.46, about no bones broken is the second witness. Again, this refers to the first coming. Finally, Zechariah 12.10 is quoted as the third witness. This refers to his second coming. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple, came and took the body of Jesus with Pilate's permission. Nicodemus, who was also a secret disciple, brought with him about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. These are indications of a royal burial. Verse 41 tells us about a garden and a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We are to immediately think again about the Garden of Eden. Adam was created and put in a garden. He had died spiritually in the Garden of Eden. He had died physically outside the garden. The second Adam would recover what Adam had lost in the first garden. Okay. All of that is introduction, and I feel led to invite questions at this time because we want to move to phase two here very soon. Anyone have any questions? Boy, I must be amazingly clear in my presentation. Anyone have any questions? Okay, let's go on. Sequence 20 in John's Gospel is the resurrection. Again, we have chiastic structure going on. Mary, Magdalene, Peter, and John at the empty tomb, the signs, disciples, and the writing of the book of John are designed to produce belief. This is all leading to one, one suggestion. On the first day of the week, John 1, 20, verses 1 through 10, on the first day of the week, literally on the first of the Sabbath, Jesus rose Saturday evening when the Sabbath was over, the Feast of First Brutus begun. There are seven Sabbaths until Pentecost. Mary Magdalene comes early while it was still dark. Very significant. Darkness here is a symbol of the absence of Jesus, the light. It could also be a symbol of Mary's unbelief or lack of understanding. She notices that the huge stone in front of the tomb has been removed. Verse 2 gives her first understanding of the resurrection, which is that someone, uh, unnamed they, have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Of course, this would be an early explanation by opponents of the resurrection. Verse 3, therefore, as a result of Mary's report, Peter and John run to the tomb. John was the younger, so he outran Peter. Verse 5, John peeks in the tomb and sees the linen cloth lying there in which the body had been wrapped. This was significant because the high priest of Israel would put aside his linen clothing when he had finished his work on the Day of Atonement. When the high priest had finished his work, he took back his high priestly garments. Here Jesus had taken back his glory that he had asked for in John 17. Compare Leviticus 16 verses 4, 23, and 24. In addition, the handkerchief that had acted as a face cloth was folded and lying in a separate place. The word here for handkerchief is the same word used in the Old Testament to refer to the veil of Moses. Moses only wore the veil in the presence of the people, not in the presence of God. So we conclude that Jesus had gone back into the presence of God. It seemed obvious that John wanted to present the work of the high priest, heaven being done, and that Jesus could not now go into the presence of God the same way Moses had done when he removed the veil. John follows Peter into the tomb, saw everything there, and believed, which is the goal of the whole narrative, to establish belief in the resurrection. And let me give you a side comment here. Every so often you'll see one of these posters that has all the names of Jesus on it. You know what I'm talking about? The Lamb of God, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's one title that is never mentioned, do you know what it is? His name is Yahweh, his name is the Lion of God, his name is this, his name is that, his name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, etc., etc. There's one name and one office that is never mentioned, and that is no one ever remembers that he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And there's a reason for that. There's a satanic interference going on because believers do not realize that we are living in the day of atonement right now. That Jesus is in the holy of holies in the heavenly places conducting our propitiation, which is a good theological word, which means he turns away God's wrath against us for subsequent to salvation sin. How do I know that I'm going to be in the kingdom? Is because I have a high priest to whom I can confess my sins whenever I commit sin subsequent to salvation. So God has made provision for us. If God had wanted perfection, he would not have instituted Jesus as our high priest. But because I have a high priest and I can confess my sins and can receive the continuing benefits of atonement, and turn away God's wrath, I have great confidence that I'm going to enter the kingdom. So, John follows Peter in the tomb, saw everything he believed. Verse 9 is amazing. It says essentially that all the clues that Jesus had given during his earthly minister were of no profit, since the disciples did not understand the scripture that predicted he must rise from the dead. In verse 10, the disciples returned to their own homes. Now, in verses 11 through 18, this section is full, again, of Old Testament imagery, especially from the Garden of Eden. Mary remains at the tomb. She is seeking the one whom she loves in accordance with the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Song of Solomon language. Mary looks in and sees two angels in white sitting at the opposite ends of the stone on which the body of Jesus had been placed. We are to think then of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the two cherubim in the tabernacle, compared with Exodus 25, 17 through 19. Jesus is lying there, or had laid there, as the blood of the sacrifice, the sacrifice between the two angels. But he's not there anymore. The angels speak to Mary Magdalene. They call her woman. Interesting. This gives us a clue that she's being addressed as a representative person, the mother of Jesus was addressed as woman. The woman at the well was addressed as woman. The lady taken in adultery was addressed as woman. Mary at the foot of the cross was called woman. In this passage, the angels address her as woman because she represents the new Eve. Or you might say she is the church, the community that is produced by the outpouring of the blood and the water. In verse 14, she turns from the angels and sees Jesus standing, but she does not recognize him. Verse 15 as Jesus addressing her the same way the angels did. Why are you weeping? It's a rhetorical question. You should not be weeping. Whom are you seeking? You should not be seeking the Lord in a tomb. Why? Because he had promised to rise. Mary supposes him to be the gardener. And I was teasing Tracy earlier along. I said, we're going to explain why Jesus was mistaken as the gardener. This is our clue to suggest that Jesus is now playing the role of the second Adam, and Mary is playing the role of the second Eve. She thinks he is the gardener, just like Eve thought Adam was the gardener. Jesus then calls her by name Mary or Miriam. She is a new Eve out of which Jesus had cast seven demons. We are to think of the seven churches of Revelation. She says to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which is equivalent to my great one. This indicates submission. Rather than doing what the first Eve had done, which was to usurp spiritual authority, the new Eve submits to the authority of the new Adam. Jesus literally says in verse 17, uh, the old King James used to say, touch me not, but literally the Greek underlying, it says, stop clinging to me. She wanted the consummation of the, wedding feast right then. She wanted to hang on to her divine bridegroom. The reason given is because he had not yet ascended to his father. In Jewish feast symbolism, he as the priest was responsible for waving the sheaf of first fruits before the father, and he had not done this yet. Rather than clinging to him, Mary was to go tell the brethren of the Messiah that he was ascending to their father and their God indicating that they had been adopted into the family of God. At the close of this section, Mary complies with the instruction she too had seen and believed. Verses 19 through 23 is the center of the chiasm. The day is Sunday, the feast of first fruits. It was evening, symbolical for the disciples remaining in the world. Jesus came into their midst with the blessing of shalom or peace. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They saw and believed. Jesus repeats the blessing of peace with a commission to the disciples to go out into the darkness as light, which is what Jesus had done. To enable them to do this, in uh, verses 19 through 23, Jesus performs a symbolic action, a reenactment of Genesis 2 7. He breathes into them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, which empowers them to forgive and retain sins. Thomas was absent when Jesus commissioned the others, as was the Jewish dispersion to whom John is writing. The others testify that they have seen the Lord. Thomas puts a condition on his beliefs. He had to see the print of the nails and put his hand in his side. Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas under the same condition as before, except it was the eighth day that Royce was talking about. This is significant because prior to the eighth day, he would have been unclean after touching the body of Jesus. See Numbers nineteen and eleven. John, Jesus invites Thomas to touch his wounds and says, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas, after doing that, confesses to Jesus, He is my Lord and my God. Jesus then pronounces a blessing upon everyone who has not seen and yet believed, which includes everyone in this audience. This would refer to either us or to the Jewish believers in the dispersion, who were being encouraged to continue in the faith. This is a well-known first ending in verses 30 through 31. It's the last leg of the chiasm. Here again, Jesus is not seen. This matches the empty tomb in verses 1 through 10. The signs and the writing of the book are designed to produce continuing belief that Jesus is the Christ, the eschatological Son of God. And that's the end of the story. So what can we say? We can say that we are under the the blessing of God because we we have not seen, but we have believed. We have to trust the eyewitnesses that were there at the time. We can also say that Jesus is the second Adam, and he is reversing everything that the first Adam lost. He's regaining the ground that the serpent took. We see him encounter the serpent in the garden, the same as the first Adam did, but this time he gains the victory because he substitutionarily dies for his bride. Mary Magdalene is a character that represents the church in Seven Demons Were Cast Out of, a demon for every age in the seven ages of the church. As a result, there's a wedding in the prospect in the future where the divine bridegroom comes back, captures away his bride, and presents his bride to himself without spot or blemish. We have looked at the women of John's gospel. They were flawed people. We are flawed people, but yet we are constituted the bride of Christ. Christ is searching us out and telling us, Put no other gods before him, no other lovers, no other bridegroom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we covered a lot of material tonight. It it cascades down upon us, but it's important to see the sacrifice that you made that extends in all different directions, to see your high priestly ministry that ministers to the body of believers, to see the future destiny as a restoration of the Garden of Eden, and even more so. We ask that all these truths would be stimulating to the saints and help us to cling to the Lord, not as Mary did, but cling to the Lord in faith, believing his promise, believing that he's coming again, continuing to believe unto eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.